continuing, we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark. We're coming close to the end. Uh, we have, counting this Sunday, we have about uh, six uh, Sundays left till Easter. Easter will be the last in our series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and we'll take, within that context, we'll take a couple Sundays um, and look at other passages as we lead up to uh, Easter. Um, but we are approaching the cross here in the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 66 to 72. It is uh, Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus. Uh, we've alluded to it already. Jesus predicted it. The disciples uh, you know, themselves were told that they would abandon Christ. So this is, we've kind of prepped the, 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 the waters, if you will, for this text. Um, but here it is. Peter's denial. I'm going to read Mark 14, 66 to 72. You can follow along in your bulletins or your Bibles. Hear God's word. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But he again denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're, the one, you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word uh, this morning. We thank you uh, for Peter. Lord, he is a broken sinner like all of us. But we also know that he was loved by you and used by you. Lord, help us to see your love to Peter and your love for us through this passage. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Many of you have read the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Some of you may have not, may not have read it. Um, I'm going to commend it to you. If you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia at all, then uh, I think you should. Um, but if you haven't, that's okay. There is a character in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, one, of the, one of the children that goes to Narnia. Uh, he is Edmund. Edmund was, I don't know, he was the, the annoying brother, older brother, Lucy. Uh, poor, poor Lucy. I, I can relate to Edmund because I was an annoying brother to my little sister uh, on occasion. And uh, Edmund was just, just frustrated by, by his siblings. They, he felt mistreated by them and misunderstood, and he had all sorts of complaints to make against his siblings. But he was a selfish kid. And he didn't believe little Lucy who said she went to Narnia. And so, but one, at one point he followed her 
and ended up in Narnia himself. And he was there, and he met this white witch. Now, this white witch, uh, of course, is the, is the evil character in the story. And he, she tempts him. She brings him up into her sleigh, and she takes this magical draft, and she pours it onto the snow and makes hot tea and then serves it to him. Then takes another little drop and uh, creates what he desired most, Turkish delight. He started stuffing his face with Turkish delight. And this was more than he could resist. In fact, after eating the Turkish delight, he wanted more and more. And of course, the witch wanted all the children. And so he would use this desire of Edmunds to get what she wanted. And there's one point at which uh, the, 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 uh, Edmund is with her, and uh, she's describing the house, that, the place she lives, the palace. She says, it's a lovely place, my house, and I'm sure you would like it. There are whole rooms full of Turkish delight. And what's more, I have no children of my own. I want a nice boy whom I could bring up as a prince and who, could, who would be king of Narnia when I'm gone. While he was prince, he would wear a gold crown and eat Turkish delight all day long. And you are much the cleverest and handsomest young man I've ever met. I think I would like to make you the prince someday when you bring the others to visit. Of course, Edmund bites. And this is the way with temptation. It comes in this beautiful thing that we want, that we desperately desire. It, it's there before us, the temptation. We think we're strong people until that temptation comes and it says, you can have it all. You can have it. You can, you can get all the desire you want. You can be the king. You know, your, your siblings, you know, they can, they'll be here too, but you'll, they'll be under you. That was kind of the, the unstated, or maybe later stated uh, promise by the white witch. It's this temptation, this delight. And all of temptation is like that. It's a delight. Now, when we come to the, 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 the story here, to the gospel of Mark and Peter's denial, don't miss it. There's a great temptation here that Peter faces, a trial. Now, it's different. It's not as, say, wondrous and glowing as it was for Edmund. Edmund had this idea of Turkish delight all his life. Uh, it was, of course, Lewis tells us that the Turkish delight was magical and that if you were given it, you would eat it until you died. And that's the way uh, uh, temptation and sin works. We just eat it until we eventually die. She withholds it so that she can get her way. But anyway, in the case of Peter, the temptation was more born out of fear, right? It was born out of this desire not to die, not to be put in with Jesus at the moment. That, that was the, the excruciating uh, fear that he had, that, that he saw his Lord and Savior under trial, being beaten, being uh, uh, blindfolded and beaten and being spat upon and being falsely accused. And, he's, and, he, and the temptation for him was, I want to get away. I don't want to be identified with Jesus. I want to have the comfort of my life and my home and my world. I, I, can't, I can't pay that price. Now, I don't look at this temptation in detail here. 
as we look at the text. Um, but what I want us to see at the, the outset here is that Peter, in this moment, is faithless. He's in this moment, he's faithless. I want us to see that, how, how he goes as far as calling out a curse upon himself and swearing that he has nothing to do with Jesus. He's faithless. But the other thing I want us to see in our text is not just the faithlessness of Peter in this moment, but I want us to see that there is one who is faithful to the end, even though we are not. That's the comfort of this text, that there is one who is faithful to the end. Let me set the scene for you. There's, there's three points that I want to I make that I want us to look at this faithless faith. I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but I want to look at that for a little bit. Then I want to look at the faithful cross-bearing that we are called to as believers. And then finally, uh, I want us to look at the one who is faithful. I want to end there in that place. But first, this faithless faith that we see in Peter and, dare I say, in our own hearts and lives. First, I want to point out that there is faith. Peter is not without faith. I think there is a contrast here between Peter and Judas. Judas, we looked at, was the the one who not just denied Christ, but he, in fact, plotted against Christ. He went out of his way to bring about the destruction of Christ. There's a distinction here between, uh, a contrast here between uh, Peter and Judas. And Peter, though, is a man who loved the Lord Jesus. Where is he right now? Where is Peter? He's in the courtyard. There's no other disciples around. He's alone in the courtyard of the high priest watching this trial unfold. Where are the other disciples? As Jesus had said earlier, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep scatter, right? So they've scattered, they've run away, they've gone into hiding. But Peter loves Jesus. And so he goes to the courtyard to, 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 to watch. Yes, to watch in horror and to watch in grief and to watch in anger and in confusion. But nevertheless, here he is. He loved Jesus. He followed him to the courtyard in the courtyard of the high priest's home. And the fact that he was even facing this temptation was because he was, in fact, a disciple of Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus. He had faithfully followed him. Yes, in his impetuosity and in all his misunderstanding of the gospel, nevertheless, when Jesus called him from that fishing village in Galilee, he came and he followed he was a disciple of Jesus. He had faith. But in this place, there was a servant girl as well, a servant of the high priest, and she had obviously seen Peter at some point, and she recognized him and said, you, you were with that Jesus, the one from Nazareth, the Nazarene. The, you, you were one of his disciples, aren't you? Can you imagine Peter at that moment? Maybe he had a hood up. Maybe he was swarming by the fire. Maybe he didn't have a hood. That's something we probably would do. But maybe, maybe he just sat there trying to stay as out of the picture as possible. But then all of a sudden, there's like a big spotlight that's put onto him. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to be Peter in that moment? 
He wanted to watch. He loved Jesus, but he was also somebody who was deeply confused. He was deeply dismayed. He was angry. He had all sorts of fear that was going on in this moment. It seemed, at least in his limited picture, it seemed that it was all crumbling away, that nothing was left, that he was going to be alone. And all the hope that he had put into this one was dissipating and disappearing. And he, he, was, he was bereft. Here was Jesus, falsely accused, beaten, spat upon. It did not make sense to Peter. You see, this wasn't what Peter had signed up for. And here was this woman. The servant girl says, aren't you one of his? How would you respond? I want to think about Peter for just a second. Peter came to this moment in his own strength. This was part of the problem when he came to watch Jesus. He came in his own strength. You'll remember that Jesus had actually told him this exact thing was going to happen, right? Not, not, not very many hours before this moment. Jesus had said, you know, you all are going to, going to abandon me. And Peter responded to that statement. He says, even though all fall away, even though they'll all abandon you, I will not. And Jesus responded to Peter's what do you say? Peter's proudness. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And what did Peter do in that moment? Did he say, Lord, you're right. I'm a weak person. I, I, I don't have that kind of strength in me. Lord, help me. Is that what he said? No, he doubled down. He said, emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He came to this moment in his own strength, not prepared for the temptation that he was going to face. Though he'd been warned by Christ, he went into the breach. Now, you know, think of like a, a like going out through the, the, the tunnel ready to fight. He went into the breach to go to battle like a child with a wooden sword facing an army. He went out, you can picture it, this little, little child with, a, with an onslaught of enemies coming after them, this little child with a wooden sword. That's what he did. He went out into the breach like a child. He was too weak to withstand the temptation. What about you? What about me? How often do we face temptation, thinking we've got it. I can handle this. I'm going to stand firm. I'm strong, Lord. You can, you can put your faith in me. I've got this. You don't have to worry about me, Lord. I'm strong. Jesus wasn't worried 
when he warned Peter. He wasn't worried about Peter being able to stand or not stand because he knew that Peter would not stand. He had no doubts that he would not stand. Nevertheless, you'll remember, they go up to the Garden of Gethsemane, and and Peter's there in the garden, and uh, he's telling his disciples, listen, I'm going to pray, and you need to pray with me, right? And of course, what do they do? They fall asleep. They're weak. So he finds them, and he says to them, watch and pray. Why? That you might not enter into temptation. And he says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus knew that Peter was too weak. Peter's problem was that he thought he was strong. And when it comes to the matter of sin, we often think we are strong. And that's as old as the lie of the garden itself, a lie that suggests that we can be like God. I can be like you, Jesus. I can stand up to temptation. No problem. I can do it. I can be like God. And that's, that's really at the heart of unbelief, right? That I can be like God, that I can do it, that I'm a strong person. The truth of the matter is you and I are weak. And the weakness, or, or better, the sin that underlies our inability to flee from temptation, like I said, is, is actually rooted in unbelief. Or, or let me put it a different way. It's rooted in the belief in ourselves that we don't need help. Why was Peter, who earlier was ready to die with Jesus in one moment, so quick to n- deny him in the next? Why? Because he believed in himself. He trusted in himself over Christ. He trusted in his own power and strength over Christ. And I think this is our problem. Too often we put our, our trust in our plans and in our power. And so when we're faced with this question, Lord, what are you doing in this moment, right? When we come to a situation where we are tempted and we can't quite see what the Lord's doing, we think, okay, I, I can manage this. Lord, you obviously don't know what you're doing. I'm going to set you aside for right now, and I'm going, to, I'm going to face this temptation. Peter went in thinking, I can do this. But when he saw his Lord in a weak position, in a position of, of being falsely accused and beaten and, and likely going to his death, he was confused and lost. And he said, the Lord doesn't understand what's going on. I need to step in. I need to be the one. Too often we put our trust in our own plan, in our own power. You see, Peter didn't understand what Jesus meant when he said he had to suffer and die, right? He had said it multiple times to the disciples. Even earlier in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 8, after Peter had confessed Christ, that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, Jesus said, I have to suffer and die at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. And Peter took him aside and rebuked him. That's not the plan, Lord. That's not the way. The way is if we're going to die, we're going to go down fighting. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take it to them. 
didn't make sense to him. He couldn't see the purpose of Christ's suffering and death. And even though he did say he would die with Jesus, I think he envisioned some climactic battle where he would die at the right hand of Jesus with a sword in hand. And this is why when he was, Jesus was arrested, Peter was the one to pull his sword and cut off the servant's ear. He thought that's how it was going to go down. And when it didn't, when Peter was faced with the question, aren't you one of those disciples? He no longer had trust in Jesus. But he thought, I got to preserve my life. I got to run. I got to hide. And I think this underlies much of our inability to flee temptation, our trust of ourselves. Like a little, that little boy with the wooden sword before the army, we think we know best. We think we got this. And then when we run into the breach and we're faced with all the blows of the temptation, when things aren't the way we think they ought to be, we find ourselves woefully unprepared. And what happens? Well, we succumb to sin. Why? Because the lies of the temptation overwhelm us. And what are those lies? Well, they're all, they're they're manifold. There's lots of different types of lies that come at us through temptation. One is uh, that somehow the sin will actually be okay for our good. That somehow if we just do this, then God will work it or something like that. And we think um, uh, this is the best path forward. If I sin, it's actually better. And I I think Peter actually thought this in the moment. It's better for me to deny Christ now and, and save my neck, and maybe we can live to fight another day. Something to that effect. Or sometimes we think in the temptation as it comes that the sin isn't as bad as Scripture makes it out to be. Peter's saying, it's better for me to live than for me to die. Then for me, it is better to lie than it is to honor Christ and potentially lose my life. That's a small sin. It will, we'll get over it. We sometimes tell ourselves that the sin we're doing doesn't compare with the consequences of honoring Christ in the moment. Because those consequences are far greater, right? Or sometimes we even know that the sin is a bad thing. We think we can manage it. We think we won't let it take hold of our life or run rampant in our life. We think that we'll fight it off incrementally, bit by bit, over time. I think Peter knew he was sinning. Notice that it says he began to utter a curse. I like that word, he began to. It's as if he started to utter the curse and make oaths. And then as the rooster crows, he realized what he had just done, right? He knew what he was doing was a sin, but he couldn't stop. He couldn't stop. Maybe he thought he could take it back later. Maybe he thought it was just a small compromise. Maybe after the dust settled, he could deal with it. But that's not the nature of sin. It's not how temptation works. You give it a little, it doesn't take a little, right? You give temptation a little bit of an in, what happens? It crushes us. We give in because we don't trust that fleeing from temptation and sin is necessary. Or that in sinning, we're committing violence and injustice against the Lord of glory. We don't don't actually see the nature of our sin. 
Like Peter, we don't fully grasp what's happening in this moment. Peter doesn't grasp that there's Jesus going to his death, the Lord of glory, the Messiah. And he had to do that to pay for sin. That was the nature of it. And like Peter, we think we got it, but we don't. We put ourselves in temptation's way. We go into the breach unprepared. We find ourselves slipping and falling. Though we may profess faith, we find ourselves faithless in those moments. But let me ask the question, what would it look like for Peter to have been faithful? It's important to consider this as we are certainly to be tempted and tried in many ways, maybe even like Peter. In other words, what does it mean to be faithful and to bear the cross of Jesus? Because that's what he called us to, to bear the cross of Jesus, to be faithful in this. Uh, if, if we, I want to go back to the chapter 8 of Mark just for a moment. It's in uh, the moment in the ministry of Jesus that we get a window both into the nature of Peter and into what it means to be faithful to Christ. If you'll remember, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And, and, and the disciples said, some think you're John the Baptist, some think you're Elijah, some think you're the prophet. And then he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, oh, me, me, I got it. You're the Christ. You're the son of God. Right? Peter was always the first. He always wanted to be the right. He always wanted to be at, at Jesus' side. And he says, you're the Christ. And what does Jesus do? Immediately after that, he goes and he teaches and he says, listen up, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by el the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. And Peter says, but you're the Christ, Lord. Come over here. What are you saying? You're the Messiah. You're the one who's the King of Kings, who's come to save your people, to deliver them, firstly, from Rome, to reestablish your kingdom on earth. He takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. And what does Jesus say to him? He turns to the crowd and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And he goes on and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever who would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be a faithful cross-bearer? Just a few things. First, it means we must set our mind on the things of God and not on the things of men. In other words, it is to know the will of God, to be immersed in his word, to understand our weakness and our sin, and to know the Lord's purpose and power in saving us as his people. It is to see Jesus as the Christ in all of his wonder, of him as a suffering servant and as the exalted Lord, as our Savior and our Lord. 
So first, it's to set our mind on the things of God. But secondly, it's to deny ourselves. It's to deny ourselves. Peter in the courtyard denied Christ and protected himself, right? I'm not with him. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not with him. I will swear on heaven. I will call curses down upon myself if I'm lying. I'm going to deny Christ to protect myself. And what, what Jesus says to follow me is to deny ourself. Peter had his mind on earthly matters, his life, his hope, and an earthly Messiah, some sort of glory. Most temptations come when we indulge our desires. We put ourselves in the way of sin rather than fleeing temptation. We flirt with it. That's not to deny oneself. That's to move towards the temptation, even if we're like, oh, I can resist. But I kind of want called to deny ourselves. Third, so we're called to fix our minds on the things of God. Second, we're called to deny ourselves. Third, we're called to lift up our cross and follow Jesus. It's not just denial of self or denial of our opportunity to sin, but it's actually an active killing off of that desire. It's to die. It's to, it's to put to death the desires of our heart that are opposed to Christ. It means lifting up our cross and dying. But it's also about living. It's about following Jesus as he carries the cross and following him in that cross cruciform way, knowing that through the cross comes resurrection and life. But it is dying to self to lift up our cross and follow him. And fourth, not from the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, but from just a little bit earlier when Jesus was in the garden with his disciples and he warned them, he said, pray that you might not enter temptation. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're to pray. This is what it looks like to be faithful to have in our mind the things of God, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow Jesus from death to life, and to be on our knees recognizing our weakness and knowing that we are desperate for God to help us. This is what we're called to, setting our mind on the things of God, denying ourselves, picking up our cross, following him, all while dependently praying to Christ for help in our weakness. This is what it looks like to be faithful. But what do we do when we're not? What do you do when you're not faithful? What do you do when you fall into temptation like Peter here? What happens when you put yourself in front of the temptation, when you flirt with it and you fall into it, and then you deny Christ, whether actually saying, oh, I don't want anything to do with him, or just by your actions? What do you do with all of that guilt and shame? What what then? Peter, here at the end, when when the rooster crows the second time, 
Peter recalls the words of Jesus. He recalled that Jesus had predicted what was going to happen. And what does he do? Peter falls on his knees and he weeps and he cries because he knows his own guilt and shame. But I wonder if he had these words of Jesus in his mind as well. Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with, whole, like, with the holy angels. Do you think Peter in that moment wondered, is the Lord ashamed of me? Has he stopped loving me? In the Gospel of Luke, it's recorded that as the rooster crowed, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. The guilt and shame was more than Peter could bear. Jesus looked at Peter, but he didn't look on Peter at that moment with anger or with wrath but with grief and with love. For there in that room before his accusers stood the faithful one. Jesus warned Peter to watch and pray lest he fall into temptation, but Jesus knew Peter would succumb to it. He knew that Peter was weak and sinful. He knew Peter would not faithfully bear the cross within, at least not yet, This was the very reason for which the Son of Man came. He came as the faithful Son of God, faithful to his Father, and faithful to sinners like you and me. Sinners who too often fall into temptation and sin, who too often deny their Lord rather than deny ourselves. Jesus would go to the cross alone, but he would go as the faithful one, bearing the just wrath of God for our unfaithfulness. But he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't simply pay the penalty for sin. He restores Peter. And I'm thankful to my father for pointing this out. I've never noticed this before, but in the Gospel of Luke, it seems that after the resurrection, we have the account of the road to Emmaus and Jesus meets with the disciples. And there's a little line in there. We aren't told any of the details, but it just says this. There was, they said, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. My dad pointed this out the other day in community group. I hadn't noticed it, but it seems that there was a private meeting with Jesus and Peter before we get to the shore of Galilee when there's that formal restoration we'll look at that in just as for just a second in just a second but i just want to notice that we have this little note with no detail that the lord met with peter it reminds me of the scene in cs lewis here in the chronicles of narnia and the lion the witch in the wardrobe edmund after he succumbed to temptation eventually goes back to the witch after he gets all his siblings. Well, he doesn't really do it anyway, but they all end up in Narnia. But he goes to the witch. He leaves his brothers, his brother and his sisters, and he goes and, and, and he hears word of Aslan being on the move, and he goes to the witch because he wants that Turkish delight. He goes and he betrays 
everyone. He betrays his siblings. He betrays Aslan. And so his life is forfeit. There's a battle that's about to, to, to impart, but here at the very last second, they decide, the witch and her minions decide, if we can just kill Edmund, then only, there'd only be three, and there's four thrones, there'd only be three kings and queens on the throne, king and queens on the throne. And so they're going to kill Edmund. But in the last second, the, the, the Narnians come and they rescue Edmund. You'll remember that, right? Well, Edmund comes back and he meets Aslan. And this is what Lewis said. That as soon as they had breakfast, they all went out. And there they saw Aslan and Edmund walking together in the dewy grass, apart from the rest of the court. Edmund the betrayer. And then Lewis goes on and he says, There's no need to tell you, and no one has ever heard what Aslan was saying. But it was a conversation which Edmund never forgot. I don't think Peter ever forgot that conversation with his Lord Jesus after the resurrection. Peter was restored. Friends, Christ knows your weaknesses and sin. He knows how you fall headlong into temptation. He knows your faithlessness, your sins of pride, adultery, greed, anger, covetousness. He knows it all. And it's why he went to the cross to cover your shame, to forgive your sin, to restore you to himself to show you his love. Of course, after the resurrection, Jesus goes ahead to Galilee and he meets the disciples on the shores of the lake. He goes to Peter's home and there he restores him publicly. This is the remarkable thing. Not only is Peter forgiven, but he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Then, then feed my sheep. Lord, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. What happens with Peter? Well, on the day of Pentecost, what is he doing? He's out there preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. He's saying, Jesus has come and he's come to pay the penalty for your sin, for your brokenness for your inability to fight off temptation has come to save you. Peter went out to proclaim the good news and hope to all the world. All praise to the Father and to the, our Lord Jesus Christ and to the Spirit. For our triune God is faithful to the end. And though we are weak in faith, we are strong in him. Let's pray.